Hailing frequencies open, sir. And welcome to this special presentation of Forgotten TV. This is Forgotten TV Supplemental Number 8. Normally a Patreon exclusive for supporters of the show, this podcast is meant to supplement Forgotten TV Episode 36 on Black TV History. I'll cover the history of the minstrel show as well as the full history of Aunt Jemima, as compiled from numerous sources. As with the main podcast on black TV history, use of outdated or racist terms such as colored, negro, or darky are used when quoted from original sources and to provide historical perspective. Because the history of Aunt Jemima is tied to the history of the minstrel show, I felt it appropriate to cover the history of just what was a minstrel show. The following is a summary of the article Behind the Blackface from Robert C. Tull, published in the magazine American Heritage. Before the Civil War, American show business virtually excluded black people, but it never ignored black culture. In fact, The Minstrel Show, the first uniquely American entertainment form, was born when northern white men blacked their faces, adopted heavy dialect, and performed what they claimed were black songs, dances, and jokes to entertain white Americans. No one took minstrel shows seriously. They were meant to be light, meaningless entertainment. But it was no accident that the blackface minstrel show developed in the decades before the Civil War, when slavery was often the central public issue, or that it dominated show business until the 1880s, when white Americans would make crucial decisions about the status of blacks, or that after the minstrel show died, the basic stereotypes that sprang from it lived on the happy banjo-strumming plantation darky, the loyal mammy and old uncle, the lazy good-for-nothing buffoon, and so on. Yes, the American people made the minstrel show what it was. America's cities exploded in the 1820s, and American show business grew along with them. City audiences were large, boisterous, and hungry for entertainment and shrewd performers quickly learned to give them what they wanted. Between the acts of live performances, audiences were treated to short variety turns of songs, dances, and comedy. Minstrel performers drew heavily on American folklore and song, so it was no surprise that the unique culture of black Americans became a regular feature of these skits. The only surprise might have been that the performers were white men wearing burnt cork makeup. But before the Civil War, blacks were rarely allowed on the popular stage, just as they were rarely allowed in white hotels, restaurants, or cemeteries. Appearing in Louisville, Kentucky around 1828, Thomas Daddy Rice, a blackface performer, saw a crippled black stable hand doing a peculiar shuffling dance. The stable hand's name was Jim Crow, and as he danced, he sang a catchy song. Wheel about and turn about and do just so. Every time I wheel about, I jump Jim Crow. 
Rice memorized the stable hand's lyrics, copied his dance, wrote some new verses, and used the routine on stage. It was an immediate hit in the Ohio River Valley, and soon, Jumping Jim Crow was performed to a standing room only crowd of over 3,500 people in New York's Bowery Theater. The Jim Crow song and dance, according to writer Y.S. Nathanson in 1855, touched a chord in the American heart, which had never before vibrated. It brought black culture to white Americans, who didn't resist the urge to try the new black dances of the 1830s any more than their later 20th century counterparts would resist trying new black dances, from the Charleston to the Hustle. His success spurred on others. Billy Whitlock, touring the South with circuses in the 1830s, would steal off to some Negro hut to hear the darkies sing and see them dance, taking a jug of whiskey to make things merrier. Ben Cotton, another blackface star, recalled, I used to sit with them in front of their cabins, and we would start the banjo twanging, and their voices would ring out in the quiet night air in their weird melodies. E.P. Christie, leader of the Christie Minstrels, was fascinated with the unique phrases and song he heard from the black dock workers in New Orleans, and so on. In late 1842, four performers, Billy Whitlock, Frank Pelham, Frank Brower, and Dan Emmett, were in New York City between engagements. With bookings hard to find, they united and staged the first entire show of blackface entertainment, calling themselves the Virginia Minstrels. An instant hit, soon there were minstrel troops almost everywhere. In 1844, the Ethiopian Serenaders played before President Tyler at the White House. Eight years later, Buckley's Serenaders performed in the new state of California. In New York City, a synagogue was converted into Woods Minstrel Hall, one of among ten major minstrel houses in that city in the 1850s. And when Commodore Perry's fleet sailed into Tokyo Harbor in 1853, his crew introduced American culture to Japan with a minstrel show. For the rest of the century, the minstrel show would be the most popular form of entertainment in America. Joke routines were told, as well as song and dance from the sentimental ballad to the comedic, were performed, including elaborately staged routines set on old southern plantations. The minstrel show produced some of America's most memorable popular songs, from Jim Along Josie, to Dance Boatman Dance, to Dixie. Indeed, Dixie was a minstrel song beloved by northern audiences before it became the semi-official anthem of the Confederacy during the Civil War. Minstrel humor ranged from skits to one-liners, from slapstick to riddles. Think jokes like, Did you hear about the man who fell off a boat? He used a bar of soap to wash himself ashore. Or... Why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side? Yes, the same humor later used in vaudeville, at burlesque shows, and on radio. Minstrels would also perform long comic monologues, which depended on the foolish misuse of language, 
known as malapropisms. These were later standard fare in the routines of Amos and Andy. With all this entertainment offered, The Minstrel Show was America's first top-notch variety show, albeit performed in blackface and black dialect. Yes, race was a central part of its initial and enduring appeal. With white northerners knowing little about black people, they enjoyed watching minstrels portray the ludicrous dialects, grotesque makeup, bizarre behavior, and simplistic caricatures, portraying blacks as totally inferior. In their plantation material, the negatives of slave life was eschewed, focusing instead on the fun and games. While it made for an entertaining show, it also meant presenting slaves as happy, dancing children. Oddly, the stereotyped plantation was also the home of an idealized interracial family. Master and mistress were the loving parents, and all the darkies, regardless of age, were their children. The most popular black members of this family were the mammy and the old uncle, such as Old Black Joe or Uncle Remus. Many of the minstrels' most popular and moving songs celebrated the allegedly close bonds between masters and their old slaves. The minstrel show's message was that the black people belonged only on southern plantations and had no place at all in the north. Dis being free, complained one minstrel character who had run away from his plantation, is worser than being a slave. Recall Dan Emmett's Dixie, a northern minstrel song introduced in New York City in 1859 by Bryant's minstrels, highlighted these messages by having northern blacks wish they were in the land of cotton. Dixie was a great hit in the North before it became the unofficial Confederate national anthem. Even after the Civil War and the abolition of slavery, minstrels and their public still sang of blacks pining for the old plantation. After having few show business competitors for decades, beginning in the 1870s, they faced serious competition in cities from large-scale musical comedies and variety shows. After the Civil War, black performers began breaking into American show business as minstrels, such as Brooker and Clayton's Georgia Minstrels, billed as the only Simon Pure Negro troupe in the world, and emphasizing their genuine slave history. Other black minstrels started playing up their race, claiming to be ordinary ex-slaves doing what came naturally, rather than the skilled performers acting out white-created stereotypes of blacks that they were. By the 1870s, black minstrels had become the acknowledged experts in plantation material. The cause of minstrelsy, black people, became part of American show business. Initially, they were limited to stereotyped roles and given little credit. This began a long struggle to modify and break free of the caricatures imposed on them by white minstrels. 
By the turn of the 20th century, major changes in society produced major changes in show business, and the minstrel show's popularity began to wane. Public interest began to shift from the themes presented in minstrel shows to industrial and urban problems and the influx of European immigrants. Minstrels tried to adapt, but blackface wasn't very effective at portraying the new European immigrants. Eventually, the Blackface Act, kept alive by a few stars like Al Jolson and Eddie Cantor, became just one of many standard vaudeville acts, and the minstrel show disappeared. But the shadow of blackface lived on into the era of radio, as we discussed on the main podcast. With that background, now it's time to talk about... Happy Aunt Jemima, famous for her secret recipe, pancakes, waffles, and buckwheat. What's a good word, Aunt Jemima? Well, Mr. Lyon, folks says there's nothing so pretty as a happy face and nothing so worthwhile as a happy life. Yes, Aunt Jemima, that is true. And now here's the chorus and some worthwhile listening. But how did smiling, happy Aunt Jemima become a nationally known radio personality of the 1940s? It wasn't by accident. For modern listeners, Aunt Jemima seems to be mainly associated with pancake syrup, but the brand didn't produce this product until 1966. Originally, the Aunt Jemima brand meant pancakes, specifically a dry pancake mix, a product of -of turn-of-the-century convenience and industrialization that was uniquely American fueled by the anticipation of the coming 20th century. The pre-made pancake mix, the first of its kind requiring the cook to only add milk, made from hard winter wheat, corn flour, salt, and leaveners, was the brainchild of entrepreneurs Charles Rutt and Charles Underwood, and was the product of trial and error. Rutt, from St. Joseph, Missouri, was the editor of the St. Joseph Gazette. And along with Underwood, they were the new owners of the Pearl Milling Company, shrewdly purchased during a nationwide glut in the flour market. Toward the end of the 19th century, improvements in transportation and agricultural technology had created a global market for American wheat. The Erie Canal and a nationwide railroad system for the first time allowed products to be shipped nationally and then across the world. After the Erie Canal opened up, first Rochester, then Buffalo, New York, were key milling centers of the country. Newly developed technology such as roller mills replaced the old-fashioned millstone to crush grain into flour, causing a quantum leap in productivity of grain processing. Not only improvements in transportation, but developments in packaging spurred mass consumption of packaged goods for the first time. Large bags of flour had long been sold at general stores, either as a full sealed flour sack or parceled out to customers that brought their own containers. Thus, the customer was constrained from buying more of an item than they had planned or from what we would now call impulse buying. But in 1870, 
the mechanical process to stamp out the paper bag was patented, allowing buyers to now carry home as much as they could transport of what they saw in the store. The simple paper bag eliminated long-time barriers to consumption and increased sales. Likely nothing else had a greater influence on the retail grocery business than the development of paper bags. This led to the development of the paper box, or what we now call cardboard. Cardboard was strong enough to withstand the printing process, allowing brand names, images, and symbols to be directly printed on the product for the first time. The ability to create a totally packaged product, sealed, branded, opened only after it had arrived at the customer's home was a paradigm shift in consumerism. Rudd and Underwood had the product, but they needed a better brand. They had been shipping their pancake mix in paper bags with the generic label, Self-Rising Pancake Flour. In 1889, Rutt attended a minstrel show where he heard a catchy tune called Old Aunt Jemima, sung by a blackface performer who was wearing an apron and bandana headband. The song is somewhat lengthy, but the stanza that closes one version expresses dissatisfaction with the dullness of worship services in white churches, such as a complaint about the length of the prayers. I went to church the other day, old Aunt Jemima, oh, 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 to hear them white folks sing and pray, old Aunt Jemima, oh, oh, oh. They prayed so long I couldn't stay, old Aunt Jemima, oh, oh, oh. I knew the Lord would come that way, old Aunt Jemima, O-O-O. The song had been written in 1875, and the Aunt Jemima caricature was portrayed by a white man in drag and blackface, with apron and kerchief tied on his head. Tapping into the advertising trend of using the mammy archetype in advertising and pop culture, recall from the main podcast that mammy an overweight, black, middle-aged domestic servant was used to sell everything from motor oil to coffee to molasses. Rudd and Underwood decided to call their pancake flower Aunt Jemima and decorated pancake mix labels with a hideous caricature of a smiling black woman showing more teeth than seems humanly possible, portraying her complete with scarf tied at the top of her head. Within a year, Rudd and Underwood had burned through their capital and were unable to fund the operation any further. They sold pearl milling along with the Aunt Jemima recipe to the R.T. Davis Milling Company in 1890, the largest flouring mill on the Missouri River. Davis added rice flour, corn sugar, and powdered milk to the recipe, a near-magical final refinement, eliminating the need to add milk.
evidently much more marketing savvy than Rudd and Underwood were, R.T. Davis chose to take the brand image of Aunt Jemima and make it into a living trademark. In 1893, the Davis Milling Company aggressively began an all-out promotion of Aunt Jemima. Needing a black woman with an outgoing personality, cooking skills, and the poise and confidence to demonstrate the pancake mix at local events, they selected former slave Nancy Green to personify the brand and wisely changed the artwork on the packaging to something respectful-looking in comparison, resembling green. Aunt Jemima's appearance on the package implied long hours in a southern kitchen in an authentic, homey product. A 59-year-old Nancy Green was thus introduced to the world as Aunt Jemima at the 1893 World's Fair. They had a fine exhibit with a giant faux flower barrel guests could enter. The World's Fair exhibition made quite a splash and went on for five months. Green greeted thousands of guests, cooked pancakes, sang and told stories of the old plantation, some likely true, others apocryphal. Her exhibit was so popular that the fair placed extra security to monitor the line, waiting to sample her pancakes. By the end of the fair, it is said people and businesses had placed 50,000 orders for Aunt Jemima pancake mix. Souvenir buttons were distributed, featuring her likeness, with the caption, Eyes in town, honey, a catchphrase the brand would use for over 60 years. Aunt Jemima thus transformed from a caricature performed by a white man in drag and blackface to a real, living black woman that reinforced the product's authenticity and origin as the creation of a real ex-slave. R.T. Davis also concocted a history, a legend behind the pancake recipe that appealed to American abundance and white leisure along with a nostalgia for a fictionalized version of the antebellum South. With every sweet and buttery bite, fairgoers were taken back to the old South as they marveled at their own modern good fortune. This is not a modern interpretation of these events. Terms like Old South, Old Time, and Plantation Home were deliberately used in the texts of Aunt Jemima corporate propaganda. The legend went like so. It was said that Aunt Jemima was the loyal cook for Louisiana's Colonel Higby, a prosperous planter on the Mississippi. Her pancakes were the envy of the region, but she would not share the secret recipe. During the Civil War, Union soldiers were threatening to rip Higby's mustache off his face when Aunt Jemima interceded offering the Northerners pancakes, and the colonel was able to escape. According to the legend, the Northerners never forgot the taste of the most delicious pancakes in the world. After Higby's death, some of them persuaded Aunt Jemima to come upriver and share her secret with the world. Themes that would dominate Aunt Jemima advertising for years to come were introduced for the first time. Aunt Jemima rescues her owner with pancakes, 
Northerners discover a Southern secret and return years later to bring it to the nation. And her recipe was so good, Aunt Jemima demanded to be paid in gold, not currency. A souvenir booklet was published in 1895 commemorating the World's Fair event. The Life of Aunt Jemima, the most famous colored woman in the world. Further solidifying the legend. Over the years, more legends were added, many the work of adman James Webb Young, used in advertisements over the decades. The legends became a part of American folklore and helped create the Aunt Jemima mystique. These were also later printed on napkins at the Aunt Jemima restaurant, which we'll talk about in a bit. By 1910, Aunt Jemima's pancake flour was insanely popular. A train of 25 boxcars loaded with the product was shipped, each boxcar holding 10,800 boxes, the largest flour shipment ever made by any manufacturer. And by 1914, the brand superseded the Davis name, and the company became Aunt Jemima Mills. The Aunt Jemima name was so popular, other companies started using it on their products, including Rigney and Company, who were selling pancake syrup under the name. This led to a lawsuit brought against them that set trademark infringement legal precedent, now called the Aunt Jemima Doctrine. Nancy Green portrayed Aunt Jemima for some 20 years. When she appeared at local fairs, festivals, flea markets, and even local grocery stores, her arrival was heralded by large billboards featuring the caption, Eyes in town, honey. Reportedly, she only refused to go overseas for the 1900 Paris Exhibition and was replaced by Agnes Moody. Newspaper articles that ran conflated Moody with the supposed real history of Aunt Jemima. Contrary to modern pop culture belief regarding a lifetime contract she had with R.T. Davis, likely another part of Davis's marketing legend, by 1910, Green had listed her occupation as residential housekeeper on that year's census form. Few who knew her at the time seemed aware of her past as Aunt Jemima. In 1923, Nancy Green was hit on the sidewalk and killed in a freak accident between a laundry truck and a car. A jury decided both were driving recklessly and indicted both drivers for manslaughter. Initial newspaper articles noting the death didn't make the connection between Green and Aunt Jemima, but soon articles ran that conflated Green's history with that of the fictional character. With fact-checking not as easy in those days, her name wasn't even gotten right in most articles. The legend of Aunt Jemima, who a headline called The Colored Mammy of Pancake Fame, was now established as pseudo-fact in a news article that was printed nationwide. Nancy Green was buried in an unmarked pauper's grave in Chicago's Oak Woods Cemetery, contrary to recent memes distributed online calling her a millionaire. 
Her grave went unmarked and unknown until 2015. The same year of her death, the United Daughters of the Confederacy tried to erect a monument to the faithful colored mammies of history. Staunch opposition from the National Association of Colored Women succeeded and the movement fizzled out. It's chilly outdoors, but inside. Ah. For generations, frosty mornings have seemed warmer with stacks of Aunt Jemima buckwheats. Right, Aunt Jemima buckwheats, deep golden brown with a tantalizing buckwheat tang. It's the same today. Men still need a hearty, nourishing breakfast. And men love Aunt Jemima buckwheats. No buckwheats can equal that famous Aunt Jemima flavor. And they're so easy, easy, easy. Just pour out Aunt Jemima buckwheat mix from the yellow box. Then add milk. Serve with crisp brown pork sausage or with ham or bacon. Lots of lucky men can have Aunt Jemima buckwheats tomorrow if they only ask for them. Men, ask for Aunt Jemima buckwheat pancakes. Mmm, my, they're good. In time, Robert Clark assumed control of Aunt Jemima Mills and early on offered promotional items with Aunt Jemima branding. While paper dolls had been featured on packaging as early as 1894, in 1906, the first Aunt Jemima rag doll was offered as a premium to customers. A few years later, the Aunt Jemima family rag dolls were offered. They were very unattractive dolls with large mouths, missing teeth, and troublesome hair. They are portrayed as poor people with patches on the trousers. The husband was originally called Rastus, another racial caricature that originated from the minstrel shows. The character of Rastus had his turn of fame on the cover of boxes of cream of wheat hot cereal. The character was renamed to Uncle Mose to avoid any brand confusion. The children, originally called Pickaninnies, with the various names of Abraham Lincoln, Dilsey, Zeb, and Dinah, eventually took the final names of Diana and Wade Davis. In 1923, the ragdolls were promoted in magazine ads in Good Housekeeping, the Ladies' Home Journal, and the Chicago Tribune. Some 18,000 shipments of rag dolls were made that year. Aunt Jemima family dolls were offered into the 1950s and were advertised in the comic section of newspapers for 25 cents and a box top. A 1949 ad had Aunt Jemima with a word balloon that read, Chillins, here's a real family treat for you. Aunt Jemima Mills had numerous premiums over the years, many of which depicted the jolly black woman in her red turban. Salt and pepper shakers, spice sets, cookie jars, a pottery set of kitchen condiment holders, all were given away in their promotions. A syrup pitcher was actually among the first of these items. In 1926, Quaker Oats purchased the Aunt Jemima Mills Company. The year before, Lillian Richard, from Texas, was hired to portray Aunt Jemima regionally. She grew up in the tiny town of Hawkins, 
which became known as the Pancake Capital of Texas due to Richard, and she was honored with a Texas historical marker in 2012. Sources differ on how long she portrayed the character, some say until 1940, others until 1948. Quaker Oats omits Lillian Richard from the official Aunt Jemima timeline. In 1929, a radio show began to be aired that would further support the Aunt Jemima legend for over 20 years. Aunt Jemima! I wish I was in the cotton, Aunt Jemima, famous for her secret recipe, pancakes, waffles, and buckwheat. Seems to me you're extra happy today, Aunt Jemima. Well, close. <laughs> for one thing, I'm looking forward to a mighty tuneful song by the chorus. Yes, Aunt Jemima, and here it is. Airing in several brief runs and formats, the Aunt Jemima show consisted of minstrel music and exaggerated black dialect. With very few blacks on the air in radio's early years, the title role was ironically played for most of its run by white actresses. Tess Gardella, Harriet Widmer, and Vera Lane. Finally, well-known black actress Amanda Randolph took over the character. The shows were pretty short segments, many running only five minutes, and would feature a couple of songs by the Jemima Chorus and banter between Jemima and the announcer Marvin Miller. The banter emphasizes serving men hearty breakfasts, which include Aunt Jemima pancakes, waffles, and buckwheats, and would regale the audience with old plantation sayings. Now, Aunt Jemima, let's have one of your down-home sayings. Well, Mr. Lyon, the home folks, they says that a happy smile helps make most any meal a feast. That's the truth. And Aunt Jemima, folks are bound to be happy when they sit down to a feast of your fragrant, appetizing pancakes. There's half a fine for the family to eat and half a fine for the ladies to fix. Easy as one, two, three. Why, you just add milk or water stirs and pop them onto the griddle. And that's all there is to it. Cool. You know, ladies, the reason I'm talking about Aunt Jemima waffles is because I'm speaking for the men. Men just love Aunt Jemima waffles, and particularly for Sunday or day-off breakfast when they've got the time and the inclination to be lazy. Men like to read the paper at the breakfast table on those days, and they like a good filling meal, a satisfying meal, a delicious meal of Aunt Jemima waffles. Ladies, Mr. Lyon show is speaking the truth. So why don't you have a fight of men in your family with Aunt Jemima waffles for breakfast real soon? Now, having delivered ourselves of that, Aunt Jemima, I think we're entitled to hear a little more music, don't you? I sure does, Mr. Lyon. Go on and sing, folks. Reuben, Reuben, I've been thinking what a grand world this would be. While Aunt Jemima aired on radio, in 1933, Anna Robinson became another Aunt Jemima, portraying the character at the second Chicago World's Fair. Never to be forgotten was the day they loaded 350 pounds of Anna Robinson on the 20th Century Limited and sent her to New York in the custody of the Lord and Thomas Advertising Agency to pose for pictures. An entire campaign was designed around her association with a parade of stars. She had personal appearances and posed with Hollywood celebrities at some of the most famous places, including El Morocco, 21, The Stork Club, and the Waldorf Astoria. Everywhere Robinson went, she was photographed, making pancakes for luminaries from motion pictures, radio, and Broadway. 
the officials at Quaker Oats were so impressed with the advertisements using Robinson that they commissioned a portrait of her. Aunt Jemima's portrait on the package was thus redesigned around this new likeness. Robinson stayed on the Quaker Oats Company payroll until her death in 1951. It's said she made enough money traveling the country, promoting Aunt Jemima to provide for her children, and even bought a 22-room boarding house, becoming an entrepreneur in her own right. Anna Robinson's picture of her smiling and holding two boxes of pancake mix is the one typically accompanying online memes that circulate about Aunt Jemima's history and falsely caption her as Nancy Green. Other actresses portrayed the character that have been omitted from the official Aunt Jemima timeline. Rosa Washington Riles was the face on the packaging from the late 30s until 1948. Anna Short Harrington played Aunt Jemima from 1935 to 1954, according to author Johnny Troy McQueen. He claims she was discovered by Quaker Oats at a fairgrounds slinging pancakes in Syracuse, New York, in 1935. Ethel Ernestine Harper portrayed the character in print advertisements and in person from 1948 to 1965, according to papers from her estate. Blues singer Edith Wilson became the face of Aunt Jemima, including notably on television commercials and radio, and was active as the character from 1948 to 1966. I found references that likely dozens of women played Aunt Jemima at many small local appearances across the country during the first half of the 20th century. In 1950, Rosie Lee Moore Hall from Robertson County, Texas, just north of College Station, continued the tradition of the Aunt Jemima character at World's Fairs and annually at the Texas State Fair. Hall portrayed Aunt Jemima reportedly until her death in 1967, which would make her the last living person to portray the character. However, there was one more highly notable woman that did. In 1955, Quaker Oats and the Aunt Jemima brand entered a partnership that would take it to another level of fame. Look, it's Disneyland. And some wonderful new pancakes have been created in Disneyland's famous Aunt Jemima Kitchen. They're Aunt Jemima party pancakes. There's eggnog pancakes made with ready-to-serve eggnog. Strawberry Aunt Jemima pancakes made with strawberry milk. And chocolate Aunt Jemima pancakes made with chocolate milk. Let's make some. That's easy. Just substitute two and one-half cups of chocolate milk for regular milk in the Aunt Jemima deluxe recipe. The recipes are on the Aunt Jemima packages. Your milkman has them, too. Make all three kinds with Aunt Jemima pancake mix and the different flavored dairy drinks from your grocer or milkman. Try the Disneyland sensation, Aunt Jemima party pancakes. My, they're good. And be sure to visit Disneyland. The Aunt Jemima restaurant opened in Frontierland at the new Disneyland in California, fully owned and operated by Quaker Oats. This was the beginning of a 15-year partnership between Quaker Oats and Disney. In its first eight years of operation, 1.6 million guests were served. In 1957, 
actress Eileen Lewis began portraying Aunt Jemima, greeting guests that arrived from all over the world, including foreign dignitaries. Clad in her bandana and matching skirt and shawl, she posed for pictures with visitors to Disneyland and herself received souvenir pictures and letters from all over the world, in all languages and from all races and creeds. She appeared at ease in front of TV cameras and was said to also have developed a close relationship with Walt Disney. Lewis died in 1964 after posing as the Disneyland Aunt Jemima from 1957 to her death in 1964. In 1970, Aunt Jemima's Kitchen was renamed to Magnolia Tree Terrace as Disney's relationship with Quaker Oats came to an end and we entered the modern era of the Aunt Jemima brand with in-person appearances of the character having already ended in either 1965, 66, or 67, depending on whose dates you trust. Brought to you tonight by Aunt Jemima. Aunt Jemima pancakes without Aunt Jemima syrup? Ridiculous. Jemima pancakes without her syrup is like the spring without the fall. There's only one thing worse in this universe. That's no Aunt Jemima's at all. Aunt Jemima's without Aunt Jemima syrup? That's ridiculous. With legends printed on the back of pancake mix boxes, elements of which were reported as fact in newspapers, to a long-running radio show, and untold millions seeing an Aunt Jemima in person across some 70 years, from Nancy Green in 1893 all the way to Eileen Lewis and Rosie Hall in the mid-1960s. It is understandable that generations of Americans have considered Aunt Jemima to have been a real person, just a kind, happy, motherly figure who made great pancakes. Regarding the consistent advertising of the Aunt Jemima brand, Dr. Maurice Manring brings out in his book, Slave in a Box. You see constant notation in the ads that you can't have Aunt Jemima today, but you can have a recipe and that's the next best thing. Aunt Jemima advertising played on a certain type of racial nostalgia, particularly in the first half of the 20th century. Looking back upon how grand plantation life was and how convenient it was, literally, to have someone like Aunt Jemima who would prepare pancakes and other meals for you. Indeed, a 1940 print ad showed a smiling white housewife accepting a box of pancake mix from a grinning Aunt Jemima with the word balloon. With a box of your ready mix in my kitchen, it's like having you there in person, Aunt Jemima. Over the years, Aunt Jemima has been used as a punchline or insult. In the second season episode of The Jeffersons, called Louise's Cookbook, George has a fight with aspiring cookbook author Louise, and they have the following exchange. Hey, ain't you listening? 
There ain't going to be no work because there ain't going to be no cookbook. George, get this through your head right now. There is going to be a cookbook. Then you got a big choice to make, sister. Do you want to be my wife or Aunt Jemima? <laughs> In 2017, a white doctor in Memphis called a black patient Aunt Jemima. That same year, a St. Augustine, Florida bakery cafe had an employee dressed as Aunt Jemima in blackface serve customers on Halloween. Earlier this year, Boy Meets World actress Trina McGee states she endured racism and prejudice on the set of the show. Among the comments made to her she was reportedly called Aunt Jemima. Calls for Quaker Oats to retire the Aunt Jemima brand are not new. In 1980, NPR's All Things Considered ran the feature Aunt Jemima is a Negative American Myth. In 1998, the book Slave in a Box was published, spurring discussion about the brand's dubious history. When the Jim Crow Museum of Racist Memorabilia opened in Michigan in 2011 and the objectification of people of color to sell products was on full display, including Aunt Jemima products from over the years, this led to further calls to retire the brand. But in mid-June 2020, in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests, singer Kirby Marier created a TikTok video that went viral, that encapsulated the history of the brand. Baby, you hungry? Let me fix you some breakfast. Aunt Jemima? Did you know the name Aunt Jemima means slave mammy of the plantation south? Did you know the founder, Chris Rutt, a white man, got the name after attending a minstrel show? Think blackface. Did you also know he hired former slave Nancy Green to be his very own Aunt Jemima, where she went around cooking pancakes and telling people stories of the good old South? And afterwards, they could take home a box of Aunt Jemima and that feeling of having their very own mammy. Not today. Black Lives Matter, people. Even over breakfast. Soon after, Quaker Oats announced they would be retiring the Aunt Jemima brand to be replaced with a new name and image, possibly by the end of 2020. Only time will tell how this new branding will be received. But it is unlikely that this will be the last time there will be controversy surrounding a brand that has a racially charged past. Well, thank you for joining me for this special episode of Forgotten TV Supplemental, and thanks to all who support Forgotten TV on Patreon, PayPal, and Amazon. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with or authorized by CBS, TAT Communications, Embassy Television, Sony Pictures Television, or any production company or network involved in the making of any TV show mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon are affiliate. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. All mentioned brands and TV series are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Aunt Jemima is a trademark of Quaker Oats and PepsiCo. The Jeffersons is copyright CBS and Sony Pictures Television. This podcast is copyright 2020 Forgotten TV Media. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Information presented is based on period news media, 
books, and website articles. All reasonable effort has been made to fact-check the information presented. However, Forgotten TV Media cannot guarantee the accuracy of every detail included and makes no representations or warranties for the content in this podcast and cannot be held liable for errors or omissions. References include AuntJemima.com, the official Quaker Oats website, BlackThen.com, Discovering Our History, Amy Halloran's article, The History of Aunt Jemima's Mill, from the newspaper Lancaster Farming, The Duchess of Disneyland blog, Robert C. Toll's article, Behind the Blackface, from AmericanHeritage.com, and the books, On the Air, The Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio, by John Dunning, Clinging to Mammy, by Mickey McElia, Slave in a Box, by M.M. Manring, and several vintage newspaper articles from newspapers.com. Thank you for joining me on this special presentation of Forgotten TV Supplemental. Until next time, this has been Forgotten TV.